In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope. Bring your pole, oil, and rope. And try not to go down in a heap. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob. Podcasting to you from dry, hot, deteriorating... (laughs) And yet still beautiful Northeast Minneapolis. It has been really hot and really dry as far as like no rain. There's been a lot of humidity, but uh, not much rain. We go stretches of more than a week without getting a drop. And my lawn is showing the the signs of it. It's basically the front yard is brown grass with weeds peeking through the back. That gets a lot more shade. Still has some green to it, but yeah, it's... It's pretty grim around here as far as the the way the vegetation looks and stuff. I feel bad, but uh, most of that stuff's pretty tough and will come back. But still, it's... July always seems to be the month that just flies by for me for whatever reason. I don't like the heat, and uh, I suppose it drives me inside and almost more cabin fever feeling <laughs> in July than I do in January. Um, but, uh, yeah, and July is flying by, it's almost gone, and, and yet I have, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 calls that have stacked up that I've been neglecting, some of the, which come all the way back to, uh, early, middle June or something when, uh, when I dropped those four podcasts in a row, and then got reactions or comments on on the ones since then so uh, we'll try to uh yeah have a bonanza so enjoy hey rob jason here enjoyed your latest episode i'm still not a fan of the thief but the way you described using them in your latest episode is much more to my liking. So, you know, maybe I'm softening my old age. And, yeah, Daniel's right. We need to get back to the grindstone. Let's get together and get on. I think Frankenstein is next. You're right. Let, let's get her done. Hey, Rob. Daniel from Minutes Keep. Uh, thanks for the shout-out. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's funny you're talking about the Thieves tools. I was kind of tossing around an idea for my OD&D game, since I only want to work with the three core classes to have the tools be the actual way that you do the task. So basically anybody can do it. So kind of along that lines, I, I think that's actually, I mean, I'll know when I use it more, but it seems like it might work out as a pretty good system. And as far as the time resource, I agree with you there too, but I think you have to look at the not doing it again until you get the next level comes down to the old school uh, mega dungeon setup, right? It's kind of like, oh man, we can't access this part of the dungeon until we come back. So I feel like that was part of gameplay, so it wasn't a big deal. But I think the way a lot of people play these days, I think the idea of just making it take more time and have wandering monsters is a good one. Rob, it's Evil Jeff. Just going through your podcast about thieves, and I agree with you with the abilities that you, you said. You know, thieves are not really as bad off as everybody makes them out to be. I think. Too many people see those numbers of the thief abilities and think rules 
And we keep saying rulings, not rules, right? As a GM or DM, I'm going to give additions and, you know, subtractions, pluses and minuses to the abilities based upon the situation. Just like you were saying, I think it makes sense. You know, we shouldn't say the thief is such a bad, you know, class. There is a lot to it there. It's just how we play it, how a GM does something with it later. So I'm not going to follow what I, my usual procedure on these things and play calls in the order I receive them instead of going to try and group them as much as I can by kind of the topic or theme. And this is, these calls were, came in, in relation to my, um, a quick glance at thieves episode. And first off, uh, thanks for the calls guys that you heard from Jason from nerds, RPG variety cast, Daniel from bandits keep podcast and YouTube channel and evil Jeff from minions and musings. And I'm glad you liked the show and, uh, Got something out of it. Jason, maybe, maybe one of these days you'll uh, <laughs> you'll accept the thief as a as a legitimate class in D D. <laughs> no, you be you, man. Um and we definitely need to get back on the Universal Monster series and and talk some Frankenstein. I raising my hand here. And the person that's dragging their feet on this, uh, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm in this like complete time management, motivational funk. Uh, I don't know what it is, but I feel like for the last year, I just have had a really difficult time focusing on anything. So I have to, I'm the one dragging my feet. I need to sit down and rewatch all the Frankenstein movies. I've definitely watched the original and Bride many times, but I've, I think I've only watched the sequels beyond that once. So I, I don't really have much of a recollection of the sun and ghost and house. <laughs> I don't even remember if, the, I know sun and ghost are two of them. I can't remember what the fifth one is. Anyway. Yes, we. I definitely want to get back on the Universal Monster train. Daniel, um, yeah, the the whole idea of Mega Dungeons is an interesting angle uh, as far as requiring thieves to gain a level before they can uh, have an opportunity to open a lock or, or attempt to lo open a, a lock that they failed on previously because, as you point out, a Mega Dungeon... Uh, is so vast that not being able to access some portion of it um, isn't, I mean, it can be an issue, but generally there's so many other options available to the party that they might be disappointed that they can't continue along one track because of a locked door or something, but it's, it's not going to really affect play that much. My main objection to that is just the nature of leveling in D&D, &D, how it essentially doubles, or the, the pace slows at each level, um, requiring more and more experience points. So if you fail at fourth level and you have to wait 
till your fifth level to try it again, that's typically going to be a much longer wait than if you failed at something at first level and you only have to wait until you gain second level. Now, there is usually more treasure that you're acquiring as you go deeper into a dungeon or or face more challenging adversaries and stuff. Oftentimes, the the rewards ramp up along with the risks, so the pace of play might not be uh, quite, you know, like doubling the, the length of time between level advancement each time. Um, not like a linear progression or something, but but still. Um, and it, it just feels a little bit, and I realize there's all kinds of artificial meta things in role-playing games and stuff, but like if a, a magic user fails to charm an opponent, it's not like they can't attempt to charm them again. They don't have to wait until they're advance a level to cast a charm person again um so i don't know it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me from a from that point of view and i'd rather just say that oh if you fail repeatedly it's just you you have to essentially go craft a new tool specifically for this lock or something and that's kind of the the fiction that explains this that you have to go back into town or back to your workshop or something or just find something that will you think will fit into this intricate lock or you have to discover some kind of puzzle or something and maybe you could explain that by saying that you had through level advancement but yeah and yeah jeff uh i i really think you the the fun and the utility of playing a thief is very dependent upon the referee changing this or changing the chances based on the circumstances involved so and i always think of it in terms of myself too i mean my experiences if i'm hiking along a river trail that's thickly wooded there have been many times where I've been just standing there watching the river and another group of hikers comes right up on me and I didn't notice them until the last second, despite the fact that they're wearing like a blaze orange jacket or something. And there's all kinds of twigs on the ground that they're crunching through and stuff. There's just the roar of the river and the the thickness of the the trees and stuff and winding nature of the trail allowed them to to just quietly move up without me noticing so if if that can happen imagine someone that's actually trained to move quietly and who is attempting to do so um, the the chances should be vastly improved and conversely if you're you know going through a uh stone corridor and wearing metal armor and carrying a, sh a shield and all kinds of equipment that could potentially scrape and rub up against each other and the walls and stuff that's why your heavily armored fighter 
can't attempt to move silently up on a, on an opponent up ahead, but the thief could. They're trained to do so or whatever. I don't know. I just... I'm not bothered so much like I've like I said in that episode by the the low chances of success at low levels for thieves in classic D&D because like I said the other classes stink too at their own <laughs> whatever is supposed to be their specialty so to me it follows suit it's just everyone stinks at low level in classic D&D uh you're you're all flawed characters even if you have incredibly high ability scores you're still a fragile little egg and i guess that's what i like about it but let's move on to some other topics because if i keep going this long-winded this is gonna be an hour and a half two-hour episode and i don't want that and you probably don't either hey rob i I didn't realize till today's episode hit that i had forgotten to Put in an entry for your your henchman contest, so I will I will share something that I think is one of the funniest things I've ever experienced as a, as a DM. Uh, one of my current campaigns, the, the party killed a giant, and so I rolled on a random table to see what was in the giant's bag that it was of loot it was carrying around. And one of the things that was in the bag was a goat. So the party has just adopted this goat. He's their he's their pet. He doesn't contribute anything in terms of combat or. He's not bonded to a particular character, like like a ranger companion or anything. He's just a goat. Um, they named him William, and he just follows them around. And I have sort of set it up so that, because <clears throat> I don't want to kill the goat, uh, that the enemies, whatever enemies they face, just for some reason ignore William the goat. So he's never really in any danger. Uh, and so now... I do have him in the initiative count so that whenever the initiative comes up, you know, somebody takes their turn, da da da, da. we get to William's initiative and I just pause for a second. It's William's turn. Bah! And then we go on to the next person in the initiative order. <laughs> uh, and so the, but the players now, all these, these, they have these wild conspiracy theories about what William is. Is he just a goat that's really lucky? Is he good at hiding? Is he like a, a demigod or some kind of fae? being that's that's taking the form of the goat that's trying to guide them they're just projecting and and i have it's none of that it's just just, he's just a goat that um they found on a random table and i conspire to keep him around so that they'll keep guessing as to who he is anyway that's my favorite henchman sidekick story (laughs) that's a great story i love when parties have almost a mascot character uh an animal or some NPC that they kind of adopt as their their party mascot, and it's even better when they start reading <laughs> stuff into it, like they're doing with uh, with William the Goat. Thanks for the call, I appreciate it. Uh, to, I'm sorry you didn't uh, get this in in time for the last contest, but the next contest, the cutoff date is Friday, August sixth. So mark that down on your calendar. And all you have to do to enter is send me a message telling me what your favorite cartoon is, preferably like what your favorite old cartoon was growing up, but it can be any cartoon that you want. Or you can sing the theme song, give the favorite catchphrase of uh, one of the characters or something. 
how it maybe plays into your your role-playing games or associates with it, whatever you want to do, as long as it's cartoon-related or maybe maybe cereal-related, what, what your favorite cereal is while you're watching cartoons, any of those things, give me a call. Your name will go into the hat for a drawing for the next giveaway of The Mitterzine by Glenn Seal and Monkey Blood Design. Daniel Norton from Bandit's Keep was the last winner. I'm going to send off, he chose Mitterzine number two, so that is going to go off into the mail. I'm going to run over to the post office later this morning and send that off. So the next contest, you can choose from the duplicates I have, Mitterzine three, four, or five. And uh, yeah, so get those entries in. I think I've only gotten one so far. So that one person, you're going to win unless someone else gets off their ass and tells me something about a cartoon. Hey there, Roberts. John here from the Red Dice Stories. Just been listening to your episode 45 about the Swords and Wizardry box set. Yeah, I'm a bit behind on my podcast listening at the minute, trying to catch up. But um, I've not backed the, the Swords and Wizardry box set. I'm... I'm known as being a big fan of OSC. However, the main reason I didn't back these Swords and Wizardry box set is because I've got like the one book versions, in some cases multiple copies of all the various different versions of Swords and Wizardry from White Box through to Core through to Complete. I think I've got about three different copies of the Complete book, including the sort of like the variant um, cover art one that they did um so for me i was just a case of like well i've already got like six versions of it i couldn't really justify spending the money on another but it does sound pretty cool nothing more profound than that to say just thought i'd give a call enjoy the episode dude take care hey john thanks for the call i appreciate it and i appreciate your point of view there um i reached a similar decision when the osc box set kickstarter was going out in the in the rules tome i kind of figured well i've got bx OSE is just essentially a reformatting of BX, probably handier to use rather than having the division based on level and dungeon versus wilderness, like BX's split. But I don't know. I guess, yeah, I, I totally get it. And um, had I been in your shoes, I would have... I'm sure made a very similar decision. We all have a finite amount of dollars that we have for gaming products. And generally, something new to me is going to win out versus something that's just a, a reprinting or a repackaging of something I already have. Hey, Rob. Daniel from Bandit's Keep. I can't remember if I already called in about this, but uh, if I did, then disregard this one. So, yeah, I, I kind of, I thought about what I said, which is unusual for me. So where I said, you know, I will run Swords and Wizardry Complete over OSC Advanced. And, you know, I don't really know that I have a particular reason, but I'm sure that I do. I think it's more of a feel thing. Um, I don't know. I did some of the playtesting for the early Advanced OSC stuff, and I know he changed it quite a bit. Um, and I didn't feel like it really felt like BX to me. It felt like another game. And I think when I run BX, I just like it to be BX. It's probably the, the very basic answer, but 
I think I will actually uh, go deeper into it in my mind and figure out why I run different games. And I'll either do a full podcast or I'll call you back. Hey, Daniel. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think there are aspects of BX that really define it as a specific version of D&D for me. And breaking away from those things does change that thought process for me. I don't know. I I am getting to the point, I, I think, of overload with different twists and versions of things and wondering whether or not it's even, you know, I want to support small creators, but I also realize that most things um, that I want to change, I, I can just change for myself with using the, the framework for any of these classic D&D games. So I'm probably done. Well, I shouldn't say that. I just backed the Hyperborea Kickstarter, the third edition of what used to be called Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, and now it's just called Hyperborea, which, as, as much as I can tell, is a reworking of first edition AD&D. Uh, kind of de-wonkifying it or maybe doing that, but having <clears throat> it just be more consistent, but more to the point of really focusing in on the swords and sorcery point of view. You know, just humans as uh, as the species, a playable species, and ramping up the kind of weirdness of Moorcock, the mythos from Cthulhu, and I've never read Clark Ashton Smith, but weirdness from there, and the swords and sorcery vibe from Howard, and and having its own setting of Hyperborea, and the rules are integrated closely to that setting. To me, that's a more interesting game now, than just some another generic version of D&D with elves and orcs and dwarves and high magic and all that business. So, I mean, I think there's a pretty good chance that I'll get the Hyperborea Kickstarter and we'll use the setting for a swords and sorcery game. <laughs> but there's probably a good chance that I'll just play it using swords and wizardry and use all the the setting material and stuff from Hyperborea, but the game itself might just be swords and wizardry. Um, we'll see. It it sounds really cool, and uh, but I I'll probably have a revolt on my hands if I change the system again with uh, with my group. So it'll probably be more of a just launch uh, idea a a fountain of setting information for me to use when i inevitably do run a swords and sorcery game rather than a D kind of game um if you catch my drift anyway very long-winded response <laughs> response but i get what you're saying about um games having a specific vibe and bx i think is one of those really specific vibes for me and sounds like for you
I'm going to get super meta here. So I'm pretty sure I heard Jason on his show talk about how you said that you don't like monster books or sorry that you don't like the art so much when it's just a portrait of the monster. That's roughly what he said. I'm paraphrasing his paraphrasing of you. But anyway, I'm, I agree. I I'd rather, I'd much rather see the art of the monster in a scene in combat. If for nothing else than to get a sense of scale, the scale of the, of how big these monsters are because i think sometimes that gets lost is just how big some of these things actually are um a really good exercise for this that i found was going to the zoo (laughs) like if you see an elephant up close and personal you get a sense of perspective on how big some of these monsters are anyway dude great stuff peace out and that of course was Joe Rodriguez from the Hindsightless podcast. Thanks for the call, Joe. And you got that absolutely right. I, I'm not so interested in art that is just glamour shots of characters and monsters, just like a, I'm ready for my close-up now kind of look. Uh, I want to see the characters in action, whether that's adventuring action, you know, like exploration or... Uh, opening a lock or getting ready to open a door or just walking through a forest or something. You know, I want to see adventuring activity and I want to see interaction with things. And I want to see things like, show me what uh, a spellcaster's doing when they're casting a spell and what that spell looks like. Show me a monster make using its special attack. And yes, show me the scale of a monster in relation to the characters. Show me how small and diminutive a halfling is compared to an ogre or a halfling compared even to an orc. Because I think <laughs> like people that play non-human uh, races or species uh, really lose sight of all that stuff too. Your guy is four feet tall or this ogre is 10 feet tall. Um, and you're, you're talking about like looking at real world things, like going to a zoo to see how huge some of these creatures are is really true. And I I remember too, like just for thinking about things too, seeing like a B-17, uh, up close, a bomber and looking in at the ball turret and thinking, my God, this poor sap was like down here and I didn't even see it from the flying point of view where you're in this glass bubble looking down feeling (laughs) I'm sure incredibly vulnerable Uh, but seeing things up close is does put an entirely different point of view on your on your thought process and perspective and seeing pictures of the monsters in action conveys a lot more than just showing the monster standing there um, so yeah, that I, I'm not so keen on monster art or game art anymore. That just is, yeah, this is me. <laughs> Show me something. Show me what you got. Hey Rob, Jason here. What do you think of the OSC referee screen compared to the swords and wizardry one? Have you seen the OSC one? 
I remember Dave Aldrich you had reviewed it with help of his kids, you know, back when Deep Percentile was a thing. But the OS, from what I, I don't own the OSC ref screen, but from what I've seen of images, it looks like it's more what you're looking for. Hey, Rob, uh, about the GM screen. Yeah, I think you got a lot of good points there. And one other thing they could do without changing uh, much, maybe you'll say this later, you're still in the middle of it, um, is they could, instead of picking stuff that's uh, you know thematic, because maybe they don't want to give names or whatever, they could take those uh, those treasure tables they have in the back of Swords and Wizardry where they have like uh, you know like the base treasure and then like you can divide it up and trade this for that, that kind of those, those tables, if you know what I'm talking about. I've always found those to be super interesting and something I rarely go to at the table because they're in the back of the book. But if they were simplified or a, a kind of a fast version of them on the GM screen, that'd be great to just hand out loot to somebody on the spot. <laughs> See, there you go. That's why I should wait to send my message till I listen further on. Of course, you mentioned the treasure tables. Um, I think random encounters is also a good one. I mean, I know that it's most people believe that you should create your own random encounters, but sometimes you just need something random. So having them by terrain would be really interesting. Um, some of the rules that you don't use that often, I actually don't know if these are in Swords and Wizardry, but things about like getting lost and stuff, uh, all that stuff would be super interesting. And now the more you talk about it, the more I'm thinking, I, I wonder if it'd be cool to have one of the panels as just a blank white space in the, you know, in the type of surface that you could use like dry erase on it, you know, then you could write whatever you want there. And those were some calls from Jason and Daniel regarding the, when I was talking about the, the GM screen from the Swords and Wizardry uh, latest round of releases, the uh, accessories pack that has the DM screen that only has the attack matrixes and how I thought that was a swing and a miss. <laughs> Herm's agreeing, I guess. Are you agreeing, Herm? And how it compares to the OSC screen. I have not seen the OSC screen, so I did a quick search to look at some images and stuff. The art on that looks cool. I like the art on the Swords and Wizardry screen, too. It looks like it's the bigger format. It's letter-sized, 8.5 by 11, so there is more area to print things. So it's, as far as size goes, I don't know. I, I'm fine with either this low-profile screen or, you know, more, the more traditional higher screen, and whether it's landscape or portrait, I don't, whatever. I don't really... You know, I don't attempt to hide roles uh, from players anymore except for things like whether or not they were successful in hearing a noise or something like that because they, they shouldn't know that, they've, that they failed on the die roll. Um, but uh, as far as the content printed on the screen, the OSC one looks vastly superior to me. It actually has information on there that I would want to reference. So that's a big step up. And Daniel's point about there being a, a blank panel with a, like a dry erase section, I think that would be great. Uh, it would <laughs> it would be a lot more useful than having attack matrices, which I don't need. Um, I mean, I'm just going to paper over it, basically. I'm going to clip on some... Uh, some stuff I use, or I'm just going to use the the Mitterlands uh, screen I have. That's that's probably what I'll do. So, yeah, to me it looks like o the OSE one is clearly superior. But that's just my opinion. Now, uh, I think we'll move on to a bunch of calls regarding my episode on 
swinginess in games and what I meant by it. And I think there's quite a few calls about, like, the swinginess of magic in some systems and criticals and fumbles. So... Hey Rob, Jason here. Enjoyed your latest episode. I personally think I would love your whisper well not your, but you know, his whispering tales of gore game. Uh, it's right up my alley. I am the opposite of you. I think if anything, magic should be swingier than regular your physical things that you do, fighting or or whatever. I mean it's physics, right? Where magic is is weird and wonderful and unpredictable. So unless you subscribe to the magic of science. Carl Sagan magic theory, um, I think magic should arguably be more swingy, which is one of the reasons I really like the DCC magic system. I I, I think it's really well done and, and captures the feel of the kind of game I like and the story I like to be involved in. That said, I fully admit it's not for everybody, and if people don't want that swinginess, if they want the Carl Sagan version of magic, then DCC is definitely not the game for them. Yeah, I don't think I really ascribe to a, a Carl Sagan version of magic, at least how I'm kind of taking that. I I don't think of it as science, and I certainly don't think of it as the same results every time. Like, you have a... you cast a spell and you get a specific result, because there is a lot of variability within traditional D&D-style magic. Virtually any healing spell or um, damaging spell has some kind of die attached to it. You make a magic missile attack and you roll it, depending on the system, a d6 plus 1 to determine how much damage you do. There's the variability. Uh, you cast a Cure Light Wound spell and you heal a die 8 of damage. There's the variability. And then there's the saving throw point of view. You cast the charm on someone, they get a save. There's the variability, and there are potentially things that affect that die roll. Um, I like, with many of these games that have the, the crazy tables and stuff, whether it's critical hit tables, fumble tables, spell tables like in D&D, I like the idea of them. What I find happens for me is when I play those games, the effects at the table are not very satisfying. They typically play slower at the table as you have to reference these various tables throughout the, the game session. And then the just the wild variability of these things makes it so that it's harder for the players to make informed choices and decisions because you don't know what the heck is going to happen you don't know if your spell's even going to work you know like or or blow yourself up or caught make everybody in the party go to sleep and save your opponents that's that can be fun and funny especially if you're just playing a one shot if you don't really care i'm i mean <laughs> i don't know i mean it's it's just not the game experience that i enjoy for long periods of time. If someone pitches that as a, a one-shot or a, a short campaign, yeah, I'll, all in. Sign me up, I'll go for it. But if someone pitches that as a long-term, year-plus-long campaign or open-ended campaign, uh, 
I'll generally say, eh, I'd rather play something else. But I completely get where some people really dig that stuff. That's an interesting crit system that he came up with for Whispering Tales Gore. Um, huh. That's interesting. I'm going to be releasing the bar fight episode here later today, um, which is not related to that at all. Oh, I know what, where I was going with. You were talking earlier about, well, you know, even in regular D&D, you know, your, your hit roll and your damage rolls aren't related and, and unless you roll crit, which is true. But again, that's the strength of Rollmaster. Now, Rollmaster has that swinging as you're talking about. You're going to end up with a party of cripples and, and whatnot pretty quickly. But, you know, that one roll handles all that for you. You know, that to hit roll really handles all that for you. So so it's actually a, a pretty um, pretty good system once you, you dial into it and everybody has copies of their crit sheets, crit charts to speed things along. Yeah, Jason, I think Rollmaster has a lot of things going for it. It it makes a lot of sense where your lightly armored uh, combatants aren't hit very often, but when they are hit, they take a lot of damage and in most cases suffer higher result criticals more quickly. You know, it doesn't take much to, to uh, inflict a punishing hit on an unarmored or lightly armored foe. And conversely, a heavily armored opponent is hit more often because they're just, you know, they're not as nimble or whatever. And, uh, but it's much harder to penetrate to the actual skin and and into the person because the armor is protecting them. So they, they take more hits, but for a little one Z, two Z damage and stuff and scoring criticals and higher end criticals is much more difficult. So it makes a lot of sense, but it's just such a clumsy game system to have a separate attack table for every weapon and then have separate attack tables for the various, you know, attacks a monster can do, whether it's, you know, claws or a bite or uh, some kind of grappling maneuver or something. It's there's and then you score a critical hit and then okay is it a slashing or is it crush or is it a puncture and you roll on another table and it just it might be a really cool system to use for just a game of tactical miniatures or something um uh some or some kind of battle game where you create some gladiators or something and have a a battle in a ring you know but as a, it's just, for me, like I was talking about with the DCC spell stuff, it's just too involved and it it's drags things much, too much. You can have combat end really quickly in, in Rollmaster, don't get me wrong. You know, you score a, a really terrible critical hit on something and that person's out of the fight, you know. So it can be resolved really quickly if you happen to roll really well. But... Uh, if there's a lot of combatants or a lot of people using a lot of different kinds of weapons, it, it just becomes uh, kind of a nightmare to run uh, with all these charts and stuff. And maybe if there's some kind of streamlined system on a computer where you can just, a few keystrokes can generate the hit rather than, you know, rolling dice and cross-indexing on tables and having 
it, it encourages you too to be just a monolithic kind of DM where all the orcs have spears because you don't want to have more than just the spear chart out, you know? So it, it creates a more like vanilla kind of approach to arming all your, your monsters or your NPCs and stuff too. So I don't know. It's, it's a cool game in theory, which again is this thing I keep coming back to, but at, in practice, it doesn't work for me. Hey Rob, Daniel from Bandit's Keep. I'm going to do the thing that I do where I call in in the middle of your podcast so that that way whatever I said doesn't become relevant or you correct it or say the same thing I'm about to say. <laughs> but hey, this is what I do. Uh, yeah, you're talking about the swinginess and the damage and what you roll to hit doesn't make a difference. And interestingly enough, I created a system. Maybe I'll talk about this on my podcast. I created a system where your weapon uh, affects your two hit. And also, uh, the single D20 die roll, what it, what it is, is uh, affects the damage. So it's literally a single die roll uh, attack and damage. And your weapon type and the uh, your level and some of that make factor into it. And you just roll one die. So you could call that even more swingy, I guess. But at least your two hit uh, matters, you know, because I've definitely seen people who roll like a 19 and then roll one damage, which which kind of sucks, I guess. So you're talking about crits and fumbles now. And, and I think for me, that just sets the tone of the campaign. So in a DCC campaign, it's going to be gonzo and swingy. And that's just the nature of it. Uh, but also keep in mind, because you were saying it doesn't matter. It does actually in DCC, the level I'm saying. Because remember, fighters and everybody else that are player characters roll on different crit tables. And they also have different crit dice, the higher level they are. So your Cobalt is rolling on the the very most basic table with a D4, where a high-level fighter might be rolling on table 5 with a D20. So it really does make a difference in DCC. I think it's probably the best crit-slash-fumble system I've ever seen, but I agree that if everybody rolls on the same crit-fumble table and everybody rolls a a fumble on a 1 and a crit on a 20, that does become a little bit silly. That being said, for something like BX or Swords and Wizardry, I would not want to use a crit or fumble table. I think that that would be too swingy for how I generally perceive running those systems, so I don't. Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyborea has one, but it's super simple. So, And it is based on kind of what you're doing, because it does things like double damage or triple damage or plus one. So that way it does actually matter. Like if you're using a dagger, you're not going to score 100 points of damage, right? But if you're using a two-handed sword, you'll you'll do more damage if you crit. Uh, but it is based on a natural 20, natural 1, so you do have that issue, uh, as you mentioned, where it's like everybody has that same chance of doing that awesome hit. Yeah, I think overall I'm I'm with you on the swinginess. I want it, but the outlier kind of craziness, um, that can be a bit much, especially in a campaign, which is why I said in most situations I don't use it. Um, I, I've seen all kinds of arguments about it being fair or not fair or whatever, but whatever. I, I, I don't take that into consideration. I more think like, well, you know, the, if you allow crits, then there's more chance or fumbles. There's more chance people are going to die. Um, I don't also look at fumbles as why does my 20th level fighter miss or stupidly 5% of the time. It's more like something happens in the combat. I mean, if you think about all the pulp stories where the hero smashes their sword against the enemy and the sword breaks, right? That's a fumble in my mind, not oh, I'm stupid and I slip on a banana peel, which I think is a lot of ways people play it up. I always think of fumbles more like something happens, not so much that the player messed up, 
Hey, thanks for the feedback, Daniel. I appreciate it. And thanks, too, for correcting me on the idea of DCC fumbles, where it's not just the same, you know, clarifying it's not just the same fumble chart you're using for all combatants, that there is kind of this escalating charts that you use with, uh, or, you know, a die that you roll to get higher and more deadly results if you're a high-level fighter or a colossal monster or something versus a giant rat. Um, so that's an important distinction to make. It, <clears throat> I think it's funny that, well, I'm definitely in the minority. I, most of the people I play with really like fumbles and crits and... <laughs> at least to a point i think they some of them start getting frustrated when they happen to them and their character gets put out of action or they you know launch their sword across the room or something or you know it's funny or it, it creates a, a dynamic situation but it can be frustrating and um uh, and especially if it if you get unlucky and it happens to you and takes out like multiple multiple characters and stuff uh it can start becoming a little bit demoralizing i think um and in general i just think of especially in a dnd kind of game i think of the combat being much more abstract and especially the concept of hit points and recovery of hit points is abstract so to also incorporate really specific things like critical hits and fumbles just doesn't feel like it meshes well to me but it can definitely work there's also just the anti-climax that you get sometimes with a crit which i think you allude to daniel um where you know you get a critical hit and then you roll the damage and it's like oh well i do one and it's doubled so i do two points of damage with my crit and that just feels kind of messed up uh, i did outline a system i was monkeying around with at times for having the actual to hit roll impact the damage you do uh, i outlined it a little bit on the audio dungeon discord where i if you miss by one, you you just do like some kind of glancing blow of one point of damage. If you roll exactly what you need to hit, you bring the damage die down one step. So say you attack with a mace, which is ordinarily a d6 damage. If you rolled exactly what you needed to hit, if you're the monster had an AC of 15 and you roll a 15, or a mod you know your modified attack rolls a 15 that mace would now step down one die in the chain of damage, so it would do a d4. If you scored just a normal hit, you know, you rolled above what you need to hit, it does its regular damage. And if you rolled five more than what you needed to hit, it would go up a step, so that mace would do a d8 in damage. So it still has the potential of just doing one point of damage, but you're increasing the potential or decreasing the potential based on the die roll but you know we could play with that or we could try it out and it might be fun but i have a feeling most people would think it's too uh, fiddly or something that there's too much to think about there or remember there it's too easy to forget about things but um i don't know all this stuff is just a matter of taste and uh 
you gotta, yeah, I guess you just have to play with things for a while to see what works because all these things are, <laughs> they're swingy by nature. So you can play the same adventure with the same players and the same characters and have completely different outcomes because of just how the attack rolls and damage rolls and saving throws all come out, you know? <laughs> you could have a walkover in an encounter, and the next time you play it out, it could be a TPK, and you did the same thing, but it, it just... And having criticals and fumbles just increases the outliers on both extremes. So... I don't know. It's all a matter of taste. But there's a couple more uh, calls on this regarding the specific uh, tale I outlined with uh, our characters facing off the three minotaurs. So, and just the critical hit system that Keith has in Whispered Tales of Gore. So Daniel's got one more, and then we'll hear again from Joe uh, Rodriguez. But that that story that you had was pretty extreme. Uh, I think that crit with the exploding and crit seems a bit much for me personally um, I like my crits to be either a little bit extra damage or maybe double damage or maybe even place them based on the weapon right uh, you score a crit with an axe you smash their shield something like that that could be a cool way to incorporate with them without making them too crazy um, but I do love the idea that like the the underdog can come forward and, and win so I do like swingy and that's how I personally think of swingy uh, is that you will in any particular die roll, especially at low levels, you could die or kill the enemy. Whereas, let's say in 5th edition, because of the way things are balanced out, generally speaking, you can take a hit from a equal type creature without dying. You can take two hits, I think. I'm not exactly sure of the number. But, you know, it's kind of designed so that one hit doesn't generally completely kill somebody. Whereas, in other games, it does. Hey, Rob, dude. I know it wasn't meant as, like, a campaign recap, but I loved hearing the story about your group fighting those all those minotaurs that was awesome man uh yeah that i know i know you were using that as an example of what you don't like really but that's what i love about gaming and about dice and rolling out the open is you don't know how it's gonna end like it's a statistical improbability or you know not improbable. Well, yeah, improbable that you guys won that fight, but it's awesome that you did. <laughs> That's such an epic fight. People are going to be talking about that in your group for a long time to come, I bet. That's dope. And it definitely, <laughs> like, you also talked about how you didn't want a game like a chess game, but you guys used a bunch of really good strategy and gotten great positions and won the fight. Great stuff. Peace out. Yeah, I think, um, I think Keith's idea for the crit system in Whispered Tales of Gore can be fun. It's it's an interesting idea. It's uh, the whole exploding dice kind of thing definitely does make it so that you could have a situation like in The Hobbit where Bard the Bowman takes down Smog with a with one arrow. And if that's the type of game you want to play, that's cool. But the the players just need to understand that this is the situation. So you can have, you know, a fifth level fighter and be taken out by a goblin with one shot if they get incredibly lucky. Uh, and conversely, the the characters can do that too. The, the first level fighter might be able to one shot an ogre or something. And, um, 
it creates a more dynamic, uncertain game. And some people really like that, and some people not so much. Or you might start out liking it and just, yeah, circumstances might change your mind. Um, I think I was not very clear on the whole chess game thing. Um, what I meant by that is I don't want a game that has no swinginess. I don't want a game where a fighter with a X strength and this weapon attacking this AC does three points of damage and that's it. You, you don't even roll to hit. You just like, all right, I engage with this foe and I do three points of damage to them every round. I don't want that. That's what I mean by a chess game where there's no variability. Um, but, uh, so I do want tactical things to matter. So the idea of having, uh, some kind of, uh, phalanx of spearmen or something, being able to bring more weapons to bear on a smaller location by, by having reach weapons in a second or even a third rank with pikes or something. To me, that has an appeal or to, to funnel the monsters down a choke point to reduce their advantage of numbers. I mean, or to soften them up with missile weapons, or to take indirect actions like smoking someone out of a cave, or or poisoning their drinking supply, or taking away their ability to forage. I mean, those are the types of things I want, are, are combat as war versus combat as sport. Uh, I'm, I'm just not so sure about the the fumbles and crits. And it might be an interesting idea too, as Daniel kind of hints at to maybe, maybe a crit or a fumble. And if you're using just a one and a 20 a natural one and 20 as the, as the indicators for those things, maybe you give the character or the DM some kind of narrative power at that point. All right. You rolled a really effective attack what more than just damage did you do to that person? And if you have an axe or something, maybe yeah, maybe you you know uh, cleave their shield in two. Uh, maybe you force them back ten feet or something. So it's kind of like using the mighty feet of arms kind of mechanic that is in DCC or something. And if you fumble, maybe so your opponent then can narrate what what happens or something. All that though is just. You really have to have people abiding by some kind of spirit of the game so that they don't... I don't know what the limiters are on those things. And that's where I always... It gets fuzzy. Like, all right, if the character says, oh, I rolled a 20, so I chop their head off. Um, or I hamstring them. Or, I mean, where do you draw the line? And that's always the the fuzzy part of it for me. Um do you want the referee to just be able to say no in a circumstance like that? Or or the player to say, no, you can't do that to me. Um, so that's where I go back to just saying, roll on a chart or just don't use them. Or just have some kind of flat thing like a crit does an extra point of damage or a crit does double damage or whatever. So anyway, thanks for weighing in on all this stuff. And next I think we got a couple calls on like session zero. All right, I forgot uh, something I was going to mention. Er, 
slam on the brakes here. So the session after we defeated the Minotaurs, the improbable action we had with them, where we probably should have died, or at least a few should have died, but we escaped be or overcame them because we scored some crits. They couldn't hit anything. Plus, they fumbled a couple of times. Um, the next session, we're leaving our little base of operations in the ruined city, heading down towards the river that divides the ruins. Um, and our entrance to the dungeon of choice uh, that we're going to explore this session, we're attacked by a pack of giant rats. I think there were ten of them, I think. And I'm pretty sure there were... Were all of us there? It might have been four or five player characters who are all somewhere between first and third level. So this should have been a cakewalk for us. <clears throat> and honestly, it would have been. The, um, the magic user could have cast sleep and probably taken them all out right away. But then your, your first level magic user has cast his spell, right? So you, you don't really want to use your the equivalent of your artillery fire your your one shell on an opponent that you should be able to to mop up pretty easily so instead we engaged them and they nearly kicked our butts we couldn't hit it seemed like they couldn't miss plus they scored several critical hits and next thing you know we're contemplating running away from a pack of giant rats <laughs> and we did end up killing them but we had to turn tail and run back to our base of operations because we were so beat up that we felt like, well, let's not <laughs> start a delve now into the dungeon when we're all wounded and uh, even after the cleric had used his healing spells and the cleric's out of spells. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we had to turn tail and run. So um, that just shows how swinging games can be, and especially when you start using critical hits... You know, it, if it's tied to 20s, natural 20s, the the more attacks there are against you, the more likely there are to be critical hits. So even though they're little piddly rats, just because there's 10 attacks, it increases the likelihood of the criticals that much more. And, okay, their critical hits aren't going to do as much damage as the Minotaur, but it just, yeah, math it out and... Uh, it's very much a mixed bag, so... <laughs> Joe, both of these things are very memorable events in our game so far. We'll definitely remember defeating the Minotaurs, and we're also now deathly afraid of giant rats. <laughs> hey Rob, Jason here. Just want to say that... And I, I don't know, I, I found Session Zero to be pretty useful in all the games that I've been doing recently. And I, I do think there's, there's value in that in, in defining the, the kind of game you want to play, the style of the game, you know, the feel, the mood, uh, it, by the way, as far as your sword and sorcery, I mean, you, you're shoot. I'm brain farting on your post-apocalyptic rules you wrote, but that's perfect for sword and sorcery. I think you really did a good job with that. I would just run it using that world, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know, man. I, I think the Session Zero is pretty useful for creating characters that work well together and, and eliminate the Paladin problem. Hey, Daniel from Bandits Keep. Um, just finally finished your episode. 
you, you make a really good point about uh, things not really always being so obvious in session zero. I mean, I've definitely had players in my group make a character that everybody seems like, oh yeah, that's a cool concept, and then, you know, four or five sessions in, you can just really tell they're not working with the group, uh, and the player has to either kind of adjust how they're playing the character or phase them out and bring in another one. As far as session zero goes, I've only actually really done one ever, and it was when we did Coriolis, because that game kind of requires it. It requires the, the characters to work together and be a team and a group on a, on a spaceship. So that, it was really needed, and it was pretty cool, actually, to have everybody kind of uh, talk about their role and how they'd work with each other and their connections. So I may try to do that more often. Yeah, again, so much of this is about, <laughs> you know, I feel like a broken record. It all depends on on your group and implementation and interpretation. The idea of session zero sounds really good. All the ones I've been involved with have left me thinking, we could have done all this via email or text message or something ahead of time and actually just played when we got everyone together at the same time. Because that's the thing that, the, the commodity that I feel you sacrifice for the session zero is time. And we're experiencing it now again in my game group where it's, it's been, and it happens every summer with vacations and everything. It just becomes much more difficult, even when we're not physically getting together at the game store or someone's home, finding a time for everyone's schedule to mesh is challenging. And tying up that time with this idea of session zero, to me, doesn't... Uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the benefits don't warrant it, in my experience. Now, I'm not saying it's not a valuable thing for groups, and I think it's especially valuable if you're doing a... You're starting what could be a long-term campaign, either with a new system and or with a new group of players or with a lot of new people at the table. Uh, so to like emphasize the, the types of things that you all want to get out of the game or whatever and the style in which you're going to interact with one another and run the game and all that business. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'd, I'd like to see a really good example of a session zero because I think a lot of people have different ideas about this. I think some people will point to session zero always and say, see, this is why you have to have a session zero because you get all these things out of the way. And mm, do you really? <laughs> can can one like two-hour conversation um, cover all the potential issues that could come up in a game and will people really even if you do come to an agreement on some of these things uh, people have a tendency to fall back into their patterns and ways of doing things uh, and sure you could point to session zero and say hey we agreed this is what what was going to happen but I don't know it almost feels like you're forcing someone to play in a style they don't want to then so I don't know what to say about all this. It, again, I, I think it can be really valuable. I think you have to um, know your group and what's going to work. It, it, 
bottom line is you just have to have people that are willing to make compromises or that have a really similar idea of what is going to be fun in this game. And if you don't, you're going to have an issue, um, regardless of whether you have the session or zero or not. Maybe that maybe that would weed out some some potential issues, and someone might just say, "Well, you know, this is just isn't going to be the game for me." And that's that's good. You're calling out a potential problem down the road. Um, but like, if you're just running one shots or you're running a short campaign, do you really want to tie up a lot of time with a session zero? And as far as rolling up characters and stuff. Again, you can have a lot of this conversation ahead of time. I mean, I'll, whenever I'm starting a new campaign the last couple of years, I'll send out a document with my proposed house rules, any kind of setting notes and stuff, and the, the players will then, you know, come back and say, oh, well, questions about this or comments about this, and wouldn't this be a better way, or have you thought about it in this point, from this point of view? I prefer people to just come to the game with their character made up and have a conversation among the players, including the DM, um, about what they're going to make and stuff or what they're thinking about making, uh, rather than... And it, it could be clumsy. It can be... It can be problematic or whatever, but I just look at that commodity of time at the table as a very important thing and not something to be squandered. Which, again, I'm not trying to make a value judgment on everyone's session zero, that it's all a waste of time. In my experience, while they haven't been a complete waste of time, I've always come away from them thinking, boy, I would have had a lot more fun if we just played and we could have resolved 95% of these things just having an email conversation ahead of time. But that's me. What else was there in there? I don't know. I'm talking too much. This, this is crazy. This is going to be like a freaking two-hour episode. I'm sorry. And I'd break it up into smaller bits and chunks, but I just kind of want to... I've, I've let these things pile up for so long, I just want to kind of have a big Bonanza episode and get it out. And honestly, the last time I did a really long Bonanza, the last one, which was back, I think, in May or something... I had a lot of listens to it, um, more than even like, it was like 120, which for me is a, a, a good episode for return. So if you don't like these really long ones, I'm sorry, but <sighs> let's keep going. Hey Rob, Daniel from Bandits Keep. I'm just starting to listen to your next or latest episode, I guess you would say. Um, and you're talking about the Mesopotamian type thing, the Conan thing. Yeah, I have the same problem. Um, and I think one thing that you got to keep in mind, at least that's what kind of straightens me out on this, is that, yes, uh, Conan has that feel, but those worlds are very much post-apocalyptic. And there were societies uh, that kind of, you know, dwelt before them. And that's, that's the part that kind of makes it, pulls it into the fantasy, right? So what are the PCs doing? Well, they're you know, seeking out these old, uh, you know, uh, civilizations to basically rob them. <laughs> At least that's what my PCs would be doing. So you're talking about the idea of the uh, playing the stats. And I think you're hitting on something. Maybe you'll actually say this, but you haven't said it yet. 
that many people don't do, but maybe games would run better if they did, which is roll the dice before you roleplay. If you're going to roleplay. In other words, if some event needs a die roll to be surprised, to have a reaction of an NPC to things you're talking about, have that die roll before you go through your whole hoopla of, you know, what your character's doing. Because so many times, you know, the same is true for combat. So many times somebody will explain this awesome thing they're doing and then they'll fail the roll. And then everybody's just kind of like, oh, I guess that didn't happen. But if you roll first and go, oh man, okay, you step forward to talk to them. Well, bad reaction roll. Now tell me, you know, what you did. That's just uh, probably very a much a smoother way to do it. So I kind of like that. Words of wisdom, Daniel. Words of wisdom. Yeah, don't get caught up in the details of trying to explain all that stuff for a Mesopotamia kind of setting. Just, yeah. Um, you're right on. Spot on there. And, yeah, that's totally how I think of narrating player action or explaining how you're doing it. Roll first and then play it up based on your attributes or the die roll or whatever to explain that in the fiction. So you just, when you're making an attack, yeah, I I uh, step forward and swing my broadsword at the, the orc in front of me. And then when you score eight points of damage, you say, you <laughs> you cleave him in the in the neck and he goes down in a heap you know you don't say i cleave the orc with my in the neck with my broadsword and then you roll a five you know so totally get where you're coming from and agree and now we move on to a bunch of calls about barrel maze boom ba boom ba boom ba boom boom hey rob jason here great episode on barrel maze yeah, I meant to get Cody Mazza, who was running Baramaze, and uh, Rob, also known as Minion, to um, come on the podcast and talk to them about Baramaze. I had played in, I played in both their Baramazes, actually, but it just didn't pan out. Sorry. We let you down, man. As far as Baramaze, though, I think it's just about the perfect mega dungeon because you can explore it when your characters get bored, then go off and do other things, kind of like you were talking about there at the end. But it's always there, kind of in the background. And then you can have, you know, if you want to have a meta plot like the game does, you could, you know, eventually that could happen whether the characters are investigating or not, right? So I, I think Baramaze is a great example of Omega Dungeon as a setting, but the characters don't have to do Megan Dungeon stuff, you know, every time. And even we didn't in Cody's game. We ended off... Of course, the party got pretty powerful, you know, off going down south, I think it was south, and encountering another, you know, real powerful party, warlord, whatever, I don't know. And we ended up doing this adventure where we had to recover something from under a lake or something. I don't remember exactly. And, and listen to Minion Rob over Confessions We Tim or Spoosey. He's doing other things, town adventures and whatnot. So there, there's definitely other things you can do, but the bear maze is always there looming in the background, right? So, yeah, I, I think it is about perfect. It's about, as far as the Kickstarter goes, yeah, I I kind of kick myself in the butt now. It was a little bit cheaper to buy it through the Kickstarter than to buy it through drive through I did the money thing, and you save maybe 15, 20 bucks by backing the Kickstarter. Um, but with the recent quality of print-on-demand books I've gotten from Lightning Source to drive through RPG, I kind of regret it because I think the Barrow Maze books are going to be the same shit quality.
I totally understand why Greg did it, you know, for filming through drive through. And to be honest, if I was doing a Kickstarter, I'd do for filming through something like that too. So I'm not sitting there boxing things up and mailing them out. And, you know, I would definitely want to fulfill through another source. And I bet your drive through is a lot cheaper than using a, one of those after Kickstarter fulfillment, you know, the pledge manager things. I'm sure just doing it through drive through and all that's a cheaper way to do it. So it, it makes 100% business sense. It just sucks because drive throughs quality on their print-on-demand stuff is not, in my experience, is not great. Um, as far as Greg, yeah, man, I hope he gets back to putting that vlog out there, that, um, you know, podcast on YouTube. Those are pretty fun. So anyhow, hang in there. Keep your head down. I know you've been busy at work, but hang in there. We're rooting for you. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Hey, Rob. Awesome to hear you on the mic again, man. Always happy to see a new episode. I loved that, uh, your recap of all those sessions, man. You know, that sounded like a lot of fun. And who knows, maybe you putting out this episode, if your players listen to it, that might reignite the passion in them. Because, I mean, that would get me pumped. If I had a campaign that set aside and one of my players, you know, had been awesome enough to take all those really cool notes, reading them again a couple years later, I, I don't know. That would reinvigorate me, and it might to your players too, so make them listen to it. Anyway, man, great to hear you again. Keep it up. Talk to you soon. Peace out. Hey Rob, Daniel from Bandit's Keep. Listening to your 10th anniversary Barrowmaze episode. Uh, all the notes and stuff. That's very cool that you kind of have that as a document of the game. Uh, you're talking now a little bit about players getting weary about, you know, just going after time and time again into the Mega Dungeon. Yeah, that, that's been my uh, experience as well. When I've run some of these, what I'm going to call modern Mega Dungeons, honestly, I feel like there's not enough treasure in them. Um, it's It's... You know, I ran a dungeon forever, and it was like the players, they leveled up, they got way more stuff when they did these, like, one-shot quests that I put for them. The dungeons themselves just don't have enough treasure. I think that people don't want to make it look like, a, you know, they used to call Monty Hall, but, you know, you've got these players, they got to level up, so they shouldn't be finding, you know, 50 gold pieces if they're, you know, with a mummy or something. I don't know what they find there, but, you know, they should be finding, like, big halls once in a while. Otherwise, they're just not going to want to go back. Why would they? Of course, that's, I'm, I'm making the assumption that it's classic type game, you know, gold or silver or whatever your standard is for XP. Obviously, if you're playing some kind of campaign where it's more um, milestones or something like that, then even that, right, then they still have to solve a milestone. Otherwise, they're not going to want to go back to the Mega Dungeons. So I think that is one of the uh, issues that people have with them and can be pretty easily solved by just having more treasure, in my opinion, and also having quests it seems like that you were doing outside the dungeon that kind of lead back to it once in a while but yeah i'm really enjoying this i'm gonna go back and listen to the rest you know i wonder too if these mega dungeons are not for lack of a better way of saying it too mega you know you look at things like barrow maze and it's got like 500 billion zillion rooms and all this other stuff which seems awesome when you are buying it as a gm you're like yes i can run this forever but like it, it, what i found in running like deep dungeons quote mega dungeons is that it's much better if they're actually smaller but deeper so people feel like they are succeeding i think the idea of barrow maze where it's uh, spread out as opposed to deep is really cool but i think then players lose the idea of progression right if you've got a mega dungeon that's deep then you might only have 10 rooms on the first level so they know when they go downstairs they're they're achieving something 
they're going to the second level. So I do think that might be a, an issue of Barrow Maze itself. I've never run it, but I've, I have it and I've read it. And it, it is a really cool uh, resource to pull stuff from. So I'm certainly not throwing shade. That was a really fun uh, experience, I guess, to, to listen to, to your campaign. Uh, I like that they seem to have gotten at high level near the end. Um, and I'm with you. I've definitely stopped campaigns to try other things and then never gone back to them and kind of feel like, man, I wish I had gone back. But uh, yeah, I think it's really cool. And the Kickstarter thing's interesting. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed to say because the amount of money I spent. Uh, I'm a super backer on Kickstarter. Like I used to back tons of stuff, but it seems like more and more people are doing exactly what you described there. And again, I'm, again, I'm not throwing shade. I don't think I am anyways. But like, if you're not going to have the books printed like better than drive through RPG, and you're just going to give a little discount, like, I just don't see the reason to book something, back something on Kickstarter unless I absolutely, absolutely must have it. Or, like, if they might not make their goal. But some of these mega projects, we'll call them, for mega dungeons that, you know, fund in five minutes, I, I don't bother anymore. Um, you know, I think, I, I'm hoping that that will get creators to, uh, oh, I'm going to cut off. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say very long-windedly is that I hope that when like more creators when they do stuff on Kickstarter start really considering putting out special things. Like if you look at Astonishing Swords I and mean, the Sorcerers, you look at OSC, uh, you look at even uh, right the Swords and Wizardry that we both back, like you've got box sets, you've got Smithstone bindings, you know, those kind of things. I'll pay, you know, a year in advance for the book to be part of the Kickstarter. But otherwise, I'm not going to give you my money uh, a year in advance so that you can release something on Drive the RPG and I'll save five dollars and it's going to be that kind of crappy print on demand. I shouldn't say crappy, that, that doesn't sound very nice, but you know, it's like print on demand is not worth me putting money up ahead of time unless I really, really think the project's not going to back unless I put my money in. So that's just my opinion and what I do on Kickstarter now. Hey Rob, this is Manion from uh, Confessions of OE Timorous Bushi. I just want to say thank you for the episode on Barrow Maze. Yep. Yeah. Totally agree with you. I usually try and shake it up every now and then. Uh, so I'm running that as a background and uh, somewhere they can go. But I also have other places they can explore. Um, I'm currently using the Hole in the Oak uh, adventure from Necrotic Gnome, uh, Old School Essentials. Also, we've had a little trek into town and, you know, things like that. So the, the, the sense that they can do other things is kind of important, but... It's good to have that main dungeon waiting there. And we're, we're still to really get into the main part of the dungeon. So the danger at the moment for my group is that they'll never really explore the Barrow Maze. You know, they'll just think, well, it's a place with loads of undead. It's kind of meaningless and there's not really much that we can do there. But hopefully we'll be able to change that a bit. Hey, thanks everyone for calling in about Barrow Maze. I appreciate it. Uh, it's, it is a scenario I really like. Um, a lot of the feedback there about mega dungeons in general, I agree with. I think they're they do tend to be too mega and kind of wear down the party. I mean, literally, <laughs> usually you end up having a lot of character death and stuff. Um, but also just kind of uh, from a enthusiasm point of view. I think sometimes, as Daniel was kind of alluding there, and and, uh, and many on, that if you don't have a feeling of accomplishment, of having like these check boxes that you, all right, we, we did this, we did this, we got down to level three, whatever, um, 
it starts feeling a little pointless. And especially, so if the whole point of going to the mega dungeon from a classic D&D point of view is to to get loot and magic items and power, but you don't really use it outside of going back to the mega dungeon to get more loot and kill more things or overcome more obstacles and get more power, you kind of get on this hamster wheel of just going to the dungeon for the sake of going to the dungeon. And um, while if the understanding in the game is, yep, this is the game, that's cool. And people can have a lot of fun with that. But um, I think there is a higher risk of player burnout in a situation like that, where if you don't, I mean, you can certainly intersperse sessions outside of the mega dungeon where the players use the knowledge that they've gained from the from the mega dungeon or the the magic items or the treasure or whatever to improve their lot in life or to uh, build a fortification or improve the the their home base town or something in some way or whatever it is that their their goals are um yeah you can do that and and have the the mega dungeon stand in more of a uh, a stark difference from what or but and some mega dungeons maybe the whole purpose is to overcome some evil boss monster at the bottom of it or whatever you know uh something spilling forth from this dungeon and you're trying to stop it. Maybe that's the whole point of the campaign. Um, but yeah, they. I think they can get to be too mega where you think, there's no way we're ever going to finish this. Um, so it, <laughs> it does start feeling a little bit pointless at times. Um, and I especially, this is my personal picadillo, but I feel that way about the really gonzo, um, fun house dungeon kind of thing where there's no real rhyme or reason to things. And that's where I really start kind of zoning out a little bit and start feeling like, well, this thing is just entirely random. So whatever I do, I, I can't really prepare for anything because I don't know what the heck is going to happen. Um, those tend to cause me to to fade out more quickly than uh, something that has more of a theme to it or some kind of defined goal or something to it and uh, you know the players are responsible a bit too for finding to, for creating their own fun and creating their own goals and stuff so it's not all on the mega dungeon or on the DM obviously but it's just a it's a different kind of thing. I really want to get Keith on a show who uh, is a big advocate of Mega Dungeons and runs them frequently in our games uh, when he runs a game. I, I think part of it is he chooses to do it because it's uh, it's probably easier if you have this prepared scenario ahead of time that can is open-ended and can go on for years and years and years. Um, it's not other than reading it and stuff, it's not a lot of work um, for the DM to... Uh, there's there's not a whole lot of requirements creatively. I mean, you, you 
certainly can um, introduce your own creative elements to it, and I'm sure he does. But, like, right now we're playing in the... Is it called Amon Vool or Amon Vol or something like that? It's one of the latest, like, huge, huge, huge mega dungeons that came out. And it's pretty cool. But it's also something that I... I feel like there's no way we're ever going to finish it. If I mean, And I don't think the point of Mega Dungeons often is, like, to clear them out or something. I think the I think players sometime, sometimes make the mistake of getting into that headspace of we got to clear out every level, you know? And, and that might not be the point. Um, my point usually is just I'm going to try and extract as many experience points out of this hole as I can. That's usually my goal. And whether if that's accomplished by pulling treasure out, that's what I'm going to do. If it's by the DM awarding experience points for exploration, like you get experience points every room you clear or or explore or whatever, that's going to be the goal. So that I mean, I approach it usually from a pretty meta point of view. I'll maybe have like my current character in Keith's game. Cole is also ostensibly looking for his lost brother who was last seen going into this mega dungeon so that's kind of a, a plot thread for him uh, so Cole is looking for his long lost brother as well but um, and the other angle there uh, that both Jason and Daniel brought up Kickstarter um, yeah the so Greg Gillespie who does Barrel Maze and is uh, in the process of fulfilling another Kickstarter. He does it, I'm sure, through one bookshelf, through drive-thru, um, because he's in Canada. So if he were to have things, say, printed up in Canada, the vast, vast majority of his backers are in the U.S. or in Europe or whatever. So shipping, international shipping, even just coming across the border from Canada, I'm sure, is uh, would ramp up the... Uh, the delivery costs and stuff. So I totally get why some uh, creators fulfill with print-on-demand options and stuff. That It makes a lot of sense for, for a lot of reasons. But Daniel makes a very valid point, and Jason, that, that uh, when I'm considering Kickstarters, to me it's all about like, is this an exclusive thing, or is this a really primo project, uh, product like Smithsone Bindings or Leatherette Editions, or you get these extra goodies if you're part of the Kickstarter? If you don't, if it's just going to end up on the shelf at your friendly local game store or available on Amazon or drive through or whatever, there isn't really a whole lot of incentive to take part in the Kickstarter, unless, like, we were talking well like we've said there's a danger of it not fulfilling or if you're really trying to get some stretch goal fulfilled or something but otherwise if it's you know if you have to wait you know six months a year for the product but you're going to be able to get the exact same thing down the road and it's only gonna be like five or ten dollars more yeah that's that's the route i'm gonna take uh, sad but true that at that point I don't really see much point in Kickstarter other than I mean from a from a producer's point of view I do if if you need the money up front to pay artists to or an editor or something um yeah I get it but uh 
it makes it a lot less palatable as a consumer. But if that, if it does end up with, you know, a superior product because of this fundraising effort, yeah, I get it. But, you know, if someone had a $10,000 goal and they're at $120,000 right now and it's the same thing that's going to be available on drive through there's not much incentive for me to plunk down the the money <laughs> through the Kickstarter project. So, yeah. Um, well, I guess that's enough talk on that. Now we've got a few calls in, I think, regarding henchmen and the whole idea that Goblin's henchmen brought forward about uh, um, the maximum number of henchmen based on charisma as a lifetime thing rather than a in-the-moment kind of limit. So let's hear, I think, from Menion and, and Daniel. Is that who did it? I don't know. Let's find out. Hey Rob, Daniel from Bandits Keep calling in about Goblin's Henchman's Colin. So I'm calling into a Colin. Uh, I think I saw that YouTube video. It was, I want to say it was on one of the like Ask Questing Beast interview things. Um, in any case, uh, right, the, the person uh, asserted that that was the way it was, I believe, in second edition D&D, which I did actually look up at, as I was watching it because I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And I didn't see that rule, but of course it might have been, you know, obscure somewhere in the DMG or I only had the player's handbook around. Or it might have been from later in the edition. But in any case, I did think it was interesting. And I started to ask myself the same question, right? Like, has anybody ever come close to that for actual true henchmen? And so it could be an interesting thing. But I like your idea of using it for starting rumors or contacts as well. I think that could be really, really, really useful. Hello, Rob C. This is Rob M., also known as Manion. Uh, just calling in regarding the uh, charisma. Uh, maximum number of henchmen. So it was always very kind of ambiguous, but the wording of the Advanced D&D first edition rulebook is as so. It absolutely dictates the total number of henchmen a character is able to retain. And that, of course, is a definition of a certain number of charisma. So the absolute maximum a character is able to retain, the verb retain suggests have at one time. Otherwise they would say have or have ever, ever have. Um, however, however, back in the day, I think the general assumption was that it was the maximum you could ever have. And that's how we played it, at least for the first couple of years. There you go. Good stuff. And uh, I think it could be fun either way. It would, it would be an interesting idea to try using it as a as a maximum that you'd ever have um or maybe it's a maximum you have but each each level or something maybe you gain the ability to retain another one or something i don't know so that you could potentially get more as you acquire more fame and fortune kind of makes sense but anything that makes charisma a little bit more interesting in classic D, i think is a, a good thing um, sorry, you're probably hearing a hum now in the background. It's getting too hot, <laughs> even down in the rumpus room. So I've had to turn a fan on. And it's time to wrap things up. I think this is our last call from Kevin at the Red Caps podcast. Talking about um, games and calling them by a specific name that 
gives a, a feel for a specific type of game and not just the game system, but the whole concept of the game. Hey, sir, it's Kevin calling in from the Red Caps podcast. Was just listening to your episode on Thieves, and the opening to that episode really connected with me in terms of calling your game based on the world. So Gary's game being called Greyhawk and our essence being called Blackmore. And I think that's something that more people should start doing, even for their convention games and their one-shots, is hold them in their world with their own subset of rules and, and play them that way. I think that kind of triggers something in my head about how I'm feeling there's too many rule systems now that are all just slight variations on BX. And maybe rather than publishing them out as full game rules, um, publishing them out as worlds, as settings, with rule modifications for that setting might make it more palatable. But something I have to think about more on. But thank you very much for putting up the episode. I'm going to go back to listen and hear what you have to say about Thieves. Take care. Yeah, this kind of comes back to what I was talking about earlier about supporting the uh, Hyperborea Kickstarter. Uh, and it plays into the other thing I was talking about, too. The, so the Hyperborea Kickstarter is not only a game system, but it's a setting. It's They're embedded together. So A, I like it for that. B, it is premium print editions that you're getting direct from Jeff Tulanian at... Uh, Northwind games with Smith's own bindings and you can I'm getting the leatherette edition it's only a little bit more than the 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 ones that will be available later on so it's it's like an exclusive thing that probably is only going to be available in the Kickstarter and maybe a few copies afterwards um, so and you get uh, an atlas of Hyperborea which I don't know if will be available later on or not uh, so yeah, these things to me make more sense than just pumping out another OSR game system. Um, and I think that's the kind of the direction I'm going as well. Um, I'm interested in it because I'd like to eventually run a swords and sorcery game. And if this is really good, it might save me a lot of time. Uh, and if not, it might give me a lot of fuel for my own stuff or rules modifications or just using the setting and using swords and wizardry for the game system, you know, whatever. But that's a more appealing Kickstarter to me than, um, than, uh, something that I can just buy on, uh, on drive through eventually or something. And it's the same thing, but, um, yeah, I, I do like the idea of how Gary's game was Greyhawk and Dave's game was Blackmore and right now Keith's game is Whispered Tales of Gore. You know, it's and mine is going to be Middlemarch and there's it's it encompasses the whole game and and not just the game system and the and the setting, but it also says it also includes the players to me in that too. Um, it's the game group and the game you're playing. And I I do <clears throat> like the idea of having names for that, too, to make it distinct. We're not just playing D&D &D tonight, or we're not just playing Savage Worlds tonight. We're playing, you know, Game X. We're playing uh, 
Deadlands Noir. We're playing New Orleans Noir, and that's Chris's game and Savage Worlds uh, using the um, the '30s Deadlands setting or whatever, and uh, and all the the characters involved in that. So, <clears throat> boy, I'm I'm losing my voice. I'm sorry. I I probably <clears throat> should have broken this up into to two or three. Um, episodes rather than having this it's probably an hour and a half which might be one of my longest episodes ever so if you've made it this far i really appreciate it and um and know that i probably won't do this again i'll i'll try never to let so many calls sit around (laughs) without me addressing them in the future um and yeah so thanks to um to Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, thanks to Evil Jeff from Indians Amusing, Daniel from Bandits Keep podcast and YouTube channel, John Allen Large from Red Dice Diaries podcast and YouTube channel, BJ from the Arcane Alienist, Joe Richter Rodriguez from uh, Hindsightless and Wheeler Woe, and Rob, also known as Menion, from Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushi. And finally, to Kevin from the Red Caps podcast. So, yeah, thanks, guys. I always appreciate the calls and um, the feedback and ideas that you all bring to this show. And until I talk to you again, don't go down in a heap.